Our New Testament scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13. These verses complement the Old Testament passage from Song of Songs that Pastor Moody will be preaching this morning. Additionally, Josh Stringer will be preaching on this passage this evening in our evening service at 6. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, in, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is God's word. tell you a little story about my parents. I suppose you can do that every now and then, can't you? Soon enough, Elijah will be doing the same to me, so. Um, My parents uh, have an unusual story about how they first got married. In summary, it is this. On their first date, my father proposed My mother's reply was something along the lines of, I'll think about it, which strikes me as remarkably gracious. (laughs) But soon enough, they were married, and 355 years later, or however long it is now they have been married, they seem as happy as ever. Uh, My mother will occasionally joke to shock friendly visitors that her and my father are going to go for a walk for a quick snog, or what Americans call a smooch, I think. And, you know, they're, they're, you know, consider my age, they're my parents, you know, they're old, you know. And so, I also find it amusing that when they uh, listen to well-meaning talks about all the ways that you have to work at your marriage, and they will come back and sometimes say innocently, uh, you know, we've never really ourselves found that to be true. I'm sure they've had their arguments, and there probably were some when we were not present. (laughs) But by and large, they seem to just bustle along together. You all know the sweet older couple holding hands in a park. Yet that's not always the case for everyone. And so how do you develop a grown-up love, whether married or single, widowed, never married, have been married, whether in relationship to your spouse or your God. Now, the passage from 1 Corinthians uh, is, uh, which we just had read, is not about 
marriage, really, it's actually about the love that a church should have. In 1 Corinthians, they were a very spiritually gifted church, but Paul was saying, well, you, but you need love. So that's what that passage is really about. But as we saw last week, marriage is about Christ's love for the church. And so the circle turns on itself as we think about love, even in the context of church. And Song of Songs is a book about love, human love. And uh, as we saw last week, the key to the meaning to that is Christ's love for the church. And this morning, we here are going to see three aspects of what I've called a grown-up love from this, from this passage. Now, before we get into this at a practical level, I just want to remind you of the interpretive approach, the hermeneutical approach that we are are taking. And that that is that Song of Songs is about love and marriage. And love and marriage are a type, a message about something else. They're about Christ's love for the church. And so we will apply this teaching here to love and marriage and, and, and to God's love for us, whether married or not. See. Now then, here are three aspects of a grown-up love that can start and develop right now, whether you're 16 or 60. First, communicate. This is from verse 8 in, uh, uh, in our passage, at the start of our passage, Song of Songs, chapter 2 and following. As you look down there, you'll notice that the lovers are doing a lot of listening as well as talking. The voice of my beloved... Communication is a two-way street, isn't it? You know the old joke of the couple who said on their 40th anniversary, after all these years I found you tried and true. What? said the other. I said, after all these years I found you tried and true. Well, I'm tired of you too. (laughs) Three principles of communication. One, listen. Listen. Do not assume you know what the other person means, whether you've been married for a long time or just starting dating. The killing factor in any relationship is the mind reader. I know what you're saying. I can finish the sentence for you. The person who thinks they know what the other person means without them having to say or you know, don't read between the lines. Oh, I can read what you're saying between the lines. No, you can't. Now, don't read between the lines. Ask for clarification (laughs) so you can understand what is said. When you said this, did you mean that? No, I didn't. Oh, I thought you did. No, I meant this. Listen to poetry. Now, I know not every guy is going to feel comfortable describing his wife as a turtle dove. Verse 12. Uh, dove, why dove? Because uh, lots of different theories about this, but because they seem in their gentleness always to be a symbol of the tenderness of love. And so in our culture, it's on the second day of Christmas that the true love sends two turtle doves, you see. It's a sort of ubiquitous symbol that is very common in culture. It's not meant to be literal. <laughs> Birds flying around the dorm room are going to create more mess than romance in practice. 
It's just evocative poetry. And there seems to be a poetic element to um, any kind of love relationship and even our relationship with God. Hence, uh, the Psalms. We had uh, one read out earlier in the service, Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. It's in a dry and weary land where there's no water. I, I long for you, God. Poetry. Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. How lovely is your dwelling place. I long to be with you. There is a poetic element to our relationship with God. Hence, the Psalms. Hence, hymns. We sang... Uh, uh, praise my soul, the King of heaven this morning, for instance. Praise my soul, the King of heaven, to his feet, your tribute bring, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, evermore his praises sing, alleluia, alleluia. Praise the everlasting King. It's poetry. Even Lecrae with his hip-hop is one, unconditional love is what you show me in a world so cold and lonely, and the life that I'm living given not based on me, but based on the fact you know me. It could be performed better, I think, but... <laughs> Poetry doesn't have to be romantic or certainly effeminate. It's saying something about the love that we experience, the blood-bought love, as Pastor Lee rightly clarified right at the beginning of our service. The grace of the Word, that it resonates so deeply that we want to we find evocative words to just express it. Listen. Poetry. Three, private seems to me that in this section here, there's something about the language that almost seems private, personal. I mean, you feel like you're not quite a peeping Tom, but you're, you're listening in on a language that, you know, it seems very personal, very private. And hence, I think that's why, again, not literally, but in verse 9, he's sort of peering through the lattices. is indicating that we're getting a little window in something very private, this communication. There's an old Edwardian cartoon from the magazine Punch, the British magazine Punch, that has two lovers sitting on a park bench, and one says to the other, darling, and the other says, yes, darling, and the other replies, oh, nothing, darling, just darling, darling. I mean, it's, some of it's enough to make you vomit, isn't it, really? It's, <laughs> you know, do I really have to listen to this? But you see, even, even prayer, go to a room, lock the door, Jesus says. Even prayer, there's public prayer, but even prayer has a personal, private element to it. When you pour out your heart to God, whether it's, I'm longing for you in a dry and watery land, or, wow, this is great, God, I love this. It's a personal, private element to it, that comes when you understand God's love at the cross, 
His blood bought love changes how you talk to him. No longer do I call you servants, Jesus says, but friends. Not, not romantic, but, but certainly loving. But of course, communication is not enough. Uh, some people seem to think if you just talk about things forever, it makes things better. Sometimes it can make things worse. With many words, there is not the absence of sin, as the proverb says. You can talk for a long time without saying something wrong. And so here, in the midst of all these gushing words, there's a second way to grown-up love, which is found in verse 15. So if you look down at that verse, let me summarize it for you like this. Second, then, catch. Catch. Now, verse 15 has befuddled commentators down the centuries, and there are some complexities here, but in my view, the confusion is needless by and large. It's a simple horticultural principle. There's still some, some of this going on in some wine-growing areas of France, vineyards there, the Bordeaux and other places where vineyards are taken care of, and, and that is that foxes love to ruin the tender young growing vines at, the, at this part of the season. So here's another image And all it's saying is that you can have all the gushing poetic language you want. You can have high-sounding theology and perfect theories about church. You can have impressive spiritual gifts and let off sort of pyrotechnical experience of spirituality like the Corinthian church. You can have all that. But if you don't watch out for the little things that break up, Love, well, you need to. That can lead to trouble. Now, there are many possible applications uh, to this, but let me just give you a couple that I think are faithfully concordant with its intention. Here they are. One, beware the excusable sin. Beware the excusable sin. Now, by that I mean the little things that to you seem not too bad, but you feel you can let slide now, I'm not trying to turn us into fundamentalists or legalists who are picky on things that do not matter and swallow a camel of stuff that does. You know, I'm talking about things that do matter, not dress or style or taste. Things that do matter and that you know matter, but you excuse because you don't want to deal with this little fox. I once worked uh, for a couple of summers for a farm, and I don't know why they hired an intellectual from Cambridge, but there you go, I was pretty bad. And one time, I think they decided they needed to have me work off some energy, so they got me to single-handedly round up a group of piglets from a large field. And those of you who know anything about farms can just imagine this scenario. You know, there must have been easier ways of doing it, I think. Those things can move fast. The reason why we let the little ones go is they're hard to catch. But it's after the little ones that ruin the great expectations. The book of Jonah says, 
Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could have been theirs. Beware the excusable sin. Two, in relation to a human relationship, beware what I call the toothpaste tube fallacy. Now, before there were pump-action toothpaste, you know, where you press a button and it all squirts out all over your counter. You don't experience that. You're more coordinated than me, but there you go. Before then, there were tubes that if you squeeze in the middle, you didn't get all the toothpaste out, and if you squeeze at the end, you did. At least I thought so. And the joke was that some people squeezed in the middle, others at the end, and they would argue about it. Now, by beware the toothpaste tube fallacy, I mean going from the small thing to the massive thing. So, going from he left his socks on the floor to he doesn't love me or respect me. A small thing is sometimes a small thing. You talk to pastors who deal with this a lot or counselors. Couples often argue about all sorts of small things. It can become mind-numbing. As you listen to it, you think, come on. Wet towels left in a heap. That's another favorite. But what's going on is that behind it, there's really a, a sensitive concern. And it's so sensitive that often the couple or the individual cannot really face it because they feel too insecure or does he love me? Does she need me? Am I a man still to her? Am I still beautiful? Will you still love me? Will you still need me when I'm 64? Or 24, for that matter. So if you find yourself arguing about little foxes, what what you need to do then, this is going to be a repeated theme all through the series in one way or another. What you need to do is invest in a Christ-centered marriage. He is the key. What that does with that covenant security, His love never ends gives you the security and confidence to relate to each other, whereby the other person is not your total security anymore. You're relating out of a secure place in your relationship with Jesus, and now you can be self-giving, not just self-taking. So for grown-up love, you need to communicate, uh, listen, poetry, private or personal, catch, but where excusable sins... But where the toothpaste tube fallacy, but also importantly, third, patience. Now, here is the repeated refrain that's verse 5 of chapter 3, the end of our section, as it was at the end of last week's section. And it's repeated because it's saying a lot, and we need to consider it repeatedly. You're not going to get this the first time you look at it. You need to look at it again. This is not simple stuff. This is profound stuff. Last week I thought with you about how this uh, repeated refrain here has at its core the power of love that points to Christ. Because marriage 
Here this song is about love and marriage because marriage is about Christ and the church right at its core is a type of message that's intended to point that way. This is a powerful thing that you should not play with. We thought about that last week. This week I want to think about with you how it's therefore saying, wait, patience. What is love? Love is patience. Love is kind. In its essence, it is patience. And here in uh, this passage, this uh, lover has been having a dream, and she's been wandering all over the place, and she's been trying to figure out what's going, and she's excited, and then she comes and realizes that she must wait. Now, I'm emphasizing this aspect this morning because it is so significant for us today. Nothing could be harder for us to understand or grasp or apply than patience. Now, of course, patience has never been easy for the human race. We sense the, our mortality. There's a ticking clock all the time, and we do not want to wait because we might miss out. It's always been the case. But today, that's made harder by the urgency and immediacy of our contemporary culture. Lots of examples that could be given about that, but take, for instance, this little toy here, the iPhone. It's turned off, by the way. I I always turn it off. You, You might like to think about doing that before you come to church, too. I like it. It's a useful tool. It's all shiny. Feels smooth like a rock. It's a useful tool. I like it, and there you are. This week came out the iPhone 5. I'm sure it's super duper. (laughs) Though if you are into Android, you may disagree. But do I really need it? Now, irrespective of the cost of such gadgets, when ministries go unfunded and phones are bought, that's, that's another whole massive issue. Irrespective of that, do I have to have it? When your relationship is not ideal, can you wait? Or do you have to upgrade? Now, we considered the covenant promise of marriage last week. It's the power of the love that is the core of this, that leads to Christ and the church that is a reflection of Christ's covenant for the church that is not a deal when if you do not get what you thought you were going to get, the deal's off. It's a covenant rock solid. We thought about that last week. But now, that love will only be fully experienced by the patient. For love is patient. It's what it is. 
You say, what does that mean? Well, here are some ideas of what that means, depending on your demographic or your age range. Wait, young lover. For Christmas presents are better opened under the tree than at Thanksgiving. Wait, middle-aged lover, for the frustration of noon, day, incompleteness. I thought it's going to be much better than this, and what do I do now? That will give way to the afternoon of calm. You want that beautiful old couple holding hands on a park bench? They went through this stage together. Wait, middle-aged lover. Wait, older couple. You're looking into the future and you know what comes next. Wait, because night gives rise to the dawn of eternity. See, and that's where this has to go. Unless you have a vision of eternity, you have to grab everything now. The only solution to the impatience that wrecks many a person's life is to realize for what and for whom you are waiting. That's why theology is so important. Who God is, the attributes of God, the atonement, understanding the structure of theology is revealed in Scripture so we can see more of who God is, for whom we are waiting Realize we will not miss out one little bit, married or single, widow or not, frustrated or really, really happy. Love is patient. But love finds its fulfillment in heaven, which is, as Jonathan Edwards said, a world of love. And it was this is a shadow of that, a preparation for that, a trajectory, a pathway to that. So when the imperfect disappears, the greatest of these is love. Patient. Well, I'm afraid that uh, my proposal to my wife was a little imperfect. I've heard many fancy stories of proposals, and I wanted to emulate them with a perfect proposal, but it was not. I, I took her to London. Uh, we live rather closer to London then than we do now, just to be clear. <laughs> and she didn't know why we were going there. And we went to Chinatown. As at the time, Chinese food was her favorite. She, she doesn't eat it now, so if you buy us Chinese food, it will only do me good, which is fine, but just to clarify that as well. And, you know, may do me less good than it did when I was 20. But. So we did that. And then after one of my, uh, uh, after that uh, restaurant meal, we went to a favorite place uh, for us in the center of London, Westminster, right across from the Houses of Parliament on the other side of the Thames and uh, Big Ben nearby. And my goal was to propose as Big Ben chimed 12 or afterwards. Unfortunately, we got there a little early. And as we waited, and I became more nervous, uh, Rochelle became more concerned uh, about us getting back home in time and all that sort of thing with the trains and et cetera. 
And in the end, I decided I'd better propose before the mood was completely killed. And so I stumbled out some less than ideal words when I'd hoped for a sort of perfect rendition of a sort of sermonic, homiletic form, you know. It's probably good for me, someone who loves words at that moment, to have less than ideal words as I just spilled out my heart. My communication was imperfect. And I know that we have not always caught every little fox, as it were. We've had our toothpaste tube fallacies and had to deal with our excusable sins. But I can tell you that as we patiently grow together, we grow ever more as a couple. Our honeymoon had some funny moments. Sometimes when you're talking to people, they say, oh, we had a terrible honeymoon, as if that's unusual. Um, Our honeymoon had some funny moments, uh, some of them even repeatable in church. Uh, We we spent most of the time, it seemed, walking uh, sort of slowly to the ice cream store from the hotels as we were in Jamaica in the summer, and that is hot. And however slowly we walked, I remember hearing Jamaicans saying to us as we walked, slow down, man, slow down, man. And I'm thinking, I'm on honeymoon. I will never get any slower than this. Never. But with patience. City can be stormed, bone, broken, or healed. Slow down, man. Waits. To do that, you see, you'll need to be sure of your eternal relationship to the world of love and of that eternity of love. That one day these faint shadows will give rise to the Son of God arising with healing in His wings. And the wedding that you may or may not have had will be consummated, not here but there, as the bride of Christ enters the wedding feast forever. Seems to me that's worth waiting for. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we thank you that heaven is a world of love. The greatest of these is love. And we thank you then that uh, whatever our experience has been of marriage or romance or relationships in this world, for those who accept your covenant conditions, namely faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For such people, they will not miss a thing. 
Father, I pray that you would give us that vision of heaven. And so help us to be patient, to invest in each other, to invest in the church. So with all the many gifts that there are here at College Church, extraordinary church with so many gifts and talents, we would increasingly be, as we are, a church of love. And that in our marriages, we would be patient with each other and so find love growing once again. Father, I pray uh, specifically this morning that there are any marriages here that have struggled today and, and been arguing for the last week or so that you would do a work of renewal. That as they take their eyes off each other to you, Jesus, and to your church, they would find in the security of that relationship and in the experience of that relationship and in the truth of that relationship and in who you are, God, such power as to mend a broken bone. Thank you, Father, for your word. And uh, we pray all these things in that precious name of Jesus. Amen.